This message was recorded live at Life Church Lancashire, a contemporary Christian church in the north of England. Learn more at lifelanks.org. So we have been going through a series as a church called Others, um, as Jeff mentioned earlier. And I just love this idea. You know, I've learned um, over the years of being a Christian, being a part of church, and especially through this series, that Others is really why we exist as a church. And so we have been looking at stories about Jesus, kind of the best example that we could follow and how we treat others, how we respond to others. And um, it's, it's been inspirational, but it's, it's also been challenging, really, to look at the way that Jesus always responded to people and for us to really learn how to treat those who, you know, may not be part of the family yet, um, but for us to be able to be a part of kind of welcoming them home and really learning how to do that. And, you know, I've really learned that the way that I treat others probably says more about my faith in God than anything else that I do. The way that I treat others actually says more about what I think about who God is and, and what I believe matters to him more than anything else that I do, more than how often I go to church or how good I am or how many rules I've followed and haven't broken. It's actually the way that I treat other people that really shows what I really believe about God. And again, that is maybe a really helpful idea, but can also be really challenging. And um, this morning, we're going to ask this question. What about when the other person is someone that actually we don't really like very much? Maybe they rub us the wrong way. Maybe our personalities just don't click. Or maybe we're actually quite justified in our reason for disliking this other person. Maybe we have a good reason for not wanting to really, you know, be this blessing to this other person. How do we respond to somebody like that? What example has Jesus set for us in how we treat others that we'd really not rather treat that well, maybe, for whatever reason? And fortunately, There's a story that we can read about Jesus, and he does set a very clear example for us in this area. So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 8. If you want to turn there, it will also be on the screen. And we're going to read a story. It starts in verse 5 of Matthew chapter 8. It says, When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home, paralyzed and suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, Shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one go, and he goes, and that one come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, Truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very hour. Now the story, just the faith of this centurion alone is kind of, a whole nother preach. So I'd encourage you to look into that maybe a bit more on your own. But today we're going to focus more on Jesus' response to 
this man, Jesus, how Jesus responded to the centurion. It's something that I find really, really helpful when I read a story, when I really want to kind of understand what was really happening, is, um, you know, I like to, like, imagine that I'm really there, and I'm part of the story, okay? So I'm not me, you know, like, looking into the story, but actually... I am a part of the story as if I was really, really there. So I'm going to ask you to kind of join me in this little imagination game or whatever and pretend that you are actually a part of the crowd that is following Jesus. Okay? Well, I, you, you can be anybody you want to be, okay? But pretend that you're a part of this crowd that's following Jesus. Maybe you're just curious about who Jesus is. Maybe you've heard the rumors that Jesus may be the Messiah the one who's going to come and rescue Israel, and that's why you're interested in him. Maybe you're one of his disciples. But I want you to imagine that you are part of this crowd that's following Jesus, and that you are, you're, you're a Jewish person following Jesus, okay? So a couple things you'll need to know about yourself, all right? So as a, as a Jewish person at this time, you would have been taught from a young age that you are special and that you are a part of God's family, that you are a part of his chosen people. And this is something incredibly important to who you are. You would know that you're part of a bigger story. Not just your story, but you're part of a whole people's story that goes all the way back to Abraham, all the way back to Moses and the Exodus. This is all part of your story. Okay, you would know that God has chosen your people as his treasured possession. And that at the moment, things are not as they should be. At the moment, your people are oppressed. Some of your people are slaves. That even though you live in your promised land that God gave to you and promised to your people, you are subjects to a governing authority which is outside of your people. Somebody else has come in and has taken over, and it's not the way that things should be. And your people, you, are waiting for God to step in again and change the story again, the same way that he did with Moses, with the Israelites in, in Egypt. When he led them out of Egypt, you are waiting for that moment again. Because at the moment, you have an enemy. At the moment, you have an oppressor. And that oppressor is Rome. Rome, the empire. Rome, the government. Rome, the authority. Everything about Rome is offensive to you, okay? Rome has come in, they've put taxes on your people, taxes that are making you poorer so that the elite in Rome can indulge and can live life as they want to. Rome, which, uh, you know, view violence as entertainment, setting up, you know, all of the, uh, all the games, the gladiators, you know, they, they love the violence, it's just, it's so entertaining, it's so great, you know. Um, Rome, full of idolatry, full of worship of other gods, not to mention worship of Caesar, who sets himself up as the son of God, who sets himself up as the savior. And also, even just down to the money that you have to use because of Rome, having a picture of Caesar on that piece of, on that coin is almost like idolatry because it's, it's this image of this other person. So for, for the Jewish people, not only was it bad enough that they had this oppressor, this empire come in and take over and be in charge of them. But actually so much of what Rome represented was just completely against everything 
that the Jewish people stood for and the way that they lived their life and what they believed they were meant to be. And you're following Jesus one day, and who comes along? A Roman centurion. Now, a Roman centurion, he wasn't just a soldier. He was somebody in charge of many soldiers. 80 to 100 is usually kind of, if you were a centurion, that was the, the amount of people you were in charge of. So this man was probably in charge of the very soldiers who every day intimidated you and your family and your neighbors, who every day, they were the ones who came and collected the taxes. They were the ones who had a right to force you to carry their bag for a mile. They were the ones who, who had this, like, you know, they just had better rights than you did. And here comes this man who represents Rome, who has an authority within Rome and has an authority over these Roman soldiers who are occupying your town. And here he comes asking Jesus for help. How do you, how would you feel in that moment? What would you expect Jesus to do? I think part of me would be like, get your own Jesus. (laughs) He's ours. (laughs) You've got hundreds of gods to pray to. Why don't you go pray to one of them? You know, like, you know, at the very least, there's annoyance. And at the very most, there's animosity and even hatred towards this Roman centurion. Not because of who, not because of the individual, just because of what he represents. You know, you don't even have to know the guy to know that you don't like him, right? And this is a situation that Jesus and this crowd are, are in. And how does Jesus respond to him? In the story, we see that Jesus responds with grace, that he grants this man's request. And he goes even further to commend his faith, to actually compare this Roman centurion, favorably compare him to the subjects of the kingdom, by which he means the people of God, by which he means the Jews. This is how far Jesus goes. How how do we become people that follow his example? Because that incredibly challenges me. That he didn't just respond politely. He didn't just say, yes, sir, and just do it to avoid trouble. You know, but actually, like, Jesus, he went the extra mile. He went further than anybody would have expected him to go. Jesus had as much reason to hate that Roman centurion as every follower that he had. Jesus had as much reason because Jesus was going to die on the cross, crucified, a form of execution the Romans themselves invented to be the most painful, awful, horrible way anybody could ever have to die. Not to mention how threatening and intimidating it would be for anybody who had to witness such an event. Jesus had just as much reason to turn his back on this man, and yet he didn't. How, how can we be like him? What is it about Jesus that is so different that we can actually catch, that we could actually follow his example? And that's, we're just going to look through a few things today that, for myself, have really helped me to begin attempting to follow this incredibly challenging example that Jesus has set for us. And I think the first thing that we need to do is that we need to understand that Jesus came for everyone. He came for everyone. Not just one group of people. Not just people who are inclined to agree with him. 
Well, he came for everyone. In Matthew 8, verse 11, in the story, Jesus says, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So like I said earlier, as, as a Jewish person, you would have known you were special simply because of the family you were born into. Because you were born a Jew, this made you a child of God. This made you part of his chosen people. And if you weren't born into that family, then you weren't. It all came down to who, which family you were born into, whether or not you were in or out. And Jesus is making a very clear point here. Physical birth has nothing to do with it. Where you were born has nothing to do with it. The family that you have been born into has nothing to do with it. Even the things that maybe you've done in the past, the decisions that you've made, even what you believe at this moment has nothing to do with it. Jesus came for every single person. Jesus died for every single person. And he says that many will come from the east and the west. And this isn't a new idea because God has always cared about the wider world. And sometimes we think, oh, but he, you know, the Israelites are God's chosen people. They must have been special. But I want to look into that a bit. Because I think we misunderstand what it means to be God's people sometimes. And I think that many Jews misunderstood this as well. So in Exodus chapter 19, verse 5 and 6, God said through Moses to the Israelite people, he said, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It's an incredibly privileged position, definitely. And I think that the Jewish people understood that this was a privileged position. But even now, as God's people, sometimes we, we misunderstand what it means, privileged. It's not privileged in the sense that we get what we want, or we get things handed to us on a silver platter, or things come easy to us. That, this is not the, that is not the privilege of being God's chosen people. The privilege of being God's people is that we get to be a part of what he's doing to reach the wider world. He says, you will be for me a kingdom of priests. What was the job of a priest? To help people connect to God. To help people understand who God really is. So God has chosen these people to represent him to the rest of the world. It has always been about the whole world. It's never been about just one select group of people. Even the laws that the Jewish people were called to follow, which you can read in Exodus and Leviticus, even the laws were never meant to exclude people, but they were meant to reveal God's character to the rest of the world. These are laws that set countercultural grace and generosity. These are laws that put in place rights, human rights, which had never existed before, even rights for slaves and servants. These were laws that required justice rather than revenge or corruption. These were laws that required people to care for the orphan and the widow and the foreigner. These were things that just did not happen in the world at this time. And God had called his chosen people to represent him, to show the rest of the world, this is who I am. This is what I'm like. This is, this is who I want to be for you. But we do fail at that at times. And when Jesus came, he lived the perfect life. 
And he perfectly demonstrated God's heart and character in the way that he responded to people, the things that he did, and the things that he said. See, Jesus didn't just show us what it means to live as a part of God's kingdom, but he showed us who the kingdom is really for. And it's for everybody. It's not just for those on the inside. It's not just for those who get it. It's not just for those who, like I said, are inclined to agree with him or have the same values as him. But actually, his kingdom is for everybody. Jesus gave everything he had for every single person. And I think when we begin to understand that, sometimes it makes it harder to look at somebody and think, you're not really worth my kindness. You're not really worth the patience or the time or the energy that I have to put into connecting with you because it's difficult um, because we understand that, that God has actually come for everyone. And for us to belong to him gives us this incredible privilege to be a part of what he wants to do in the lives of the people around us. It's such a privilege. So I think when we understand that, it does make a difference. And it helps to change our attitude. And I think that's the next thing that we just need to be aware of. We need to ch- you need to check yourself before you wreck yourself. Right? Because it's all about attitude. Right? I mean, attitude affects everything. Um, you could, you know, a group of people could have the exact same experience and all walk away feeling completely different about it. And it all comes down to attitude. I mean, if you need any proof of this, you, you just need to go on holiday with a family that has teenagers, right? And that's all that it takes. And you will understand what I'm saying, right? I have, I, I have two sisters and, um, you know, I couldn't just pick one story because there's many of holidays that we went on where we kind of took turns being the grumpy one, you know, and it did not matter how much the sun was shining. It did not matter how good the food was. It did not matter how wonderful the holiday was. If one of us had set ourselves against enjoying ourselves, that was that. We were just not going to enjoy ourselves. And for some reason, when one sibling decides not to enjoy themselves, the other one's like, their enjoyment increases like tenfold. <laughs> like, doesn't it? <laughs> it's like, I don't know what it is, but um, everybody else just enjoys themselves that much more. And, um, but it's so true. Like, you could have this group of people who have the exact same experience, but if they go into it with different attitudes, it completely changes how they experience that experience. And I think that that is so key to the way we interact with other people, that our attitude is determined before we connect with them, that, that we can determine our attitude before the event. We can determine our attitude before that experience, before that interaction. And this is something that I think Jesus did, it's something that he taught. If we just flip back a couple pages to Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. This is Jesus' words. He says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbors and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So Jesus had already decided, 
This is about loving our enemies. Maybe you're fortunate enough not to have any enemies, but even more so then, if we're called to love our enemies, how much more are we called to love the obnoxious neighbor, the arrogant coworker, the guy who cut you off on your drive into church this morning, right? Like how much more are we called to love them than people we might not consider enemies, but people who maybe don't make life easier for us. But it's about setting this attitude in advance that I'm going to be a loving person. What does that look like? Love is patient, kind. Love does not envy. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrong, no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. For us to be people who make that decision in advance, my attitude is going to be one of love. I'm going to choose today that whoever I encounter, I want to respond in love. I'm going to go into today having that attitude and see how it changes your experience. And I think it's important we understand this is not just good advice, but this is actually good news. That actually there's a way to live your life that does not have to include anger and bitterness and hatred and animosity and grudges and revenge. That those don't have to be a part of your life. Those, don't, those aren't automatics when it comes to working with people and spending time with people and having people as a part of your life. Actually, there's a different way to live. This is good news. That we can live lives of love, lives that are full of kindness. We can, we can have relationships and connections with people that don't have to carry all those negative things that sometimes come along with our, with our interactions. There's a new way to live, and Jesus is showing us how. So I think that the next thing that we can do to really help us follow this example is to accept what God wants to do in you. Because I think this is where the good news gets really, really good. Okay? So just stay with me, all right? This is where the good news gets really good. When Jesus says, love your enemies, the word that is used for love is agapeo. So in the New Testament, there's three different Greek words that are used for love. Um, there's the word eros, and when that word is used for love, it kind of, it meant like a romantic love, okay? Um, there's another word, phileo, I'm probably saying it wrong, um, but that stands for brotherly love, like a friendship love. And then there's agape, and agape is God's love, perfect love, unconditional love, boundless love. And here Jesus is saying, agapeo, your enemies. So eros says... I love you because you make me feel good. And Phileo Love says, I love you because together we're better. We're a great team. And Agape Love says, I love you because God loves me. Have you ever tried to be nice to somebody that you just don't like? And no matter how hard you try, it's like there's nothing in you to give. Do you, know, do, you, do you know what I mean, that feeling? Like, you, you're genuinely, you're like, I genuinely want to try with this person, and I want to love this person. But, like, when I go, like, to 
like the love tank, it's empty. Like, I've got no love for this person to give. I don't know where that's going to come from. And here Jesus is saying, agapeo your enemies. In other words, receive the love God has for you, and God's love will love your enemies through you. Good news. It's not all on you. Good news. You don't have to do this on your own. Good news. This is about you actually receiving God's love and then being open to let it pour out of you onto somebody else. You don't have to go to this love tank running on empty. God, I've not got the love for this person. That's all right. He does. He's got the love for that person. If you really want to show love to that person, you don't have to try to come up with it on your own. Instead of saying, God, I know you love me. Would you give me your love for that person? Because I can't do it. And it makes a massive difference. I know from my own personal trying to love people that I struggle to love, that prayer has made such a difference. Understanding that, hold on a second. God's not asking me to do any of this on my own. Even Jesus was saying, agapeo, your enemies. Like, God's love. Use God's love to love your enemies. Let it flow through you. But first, you have to receive it. Because you can't give something you don't have yourself. So accepting what God wants to do in you. And then act on what God wants to do through you. We talk about the difference between love and hate, right? And we might be thinking well, that's all right. I don't hate anybody, so I'm good. (laughs) There's nobody that I hate. Like, hate's a really strong word. But really, love isn't exactly the absence of hate, is it? You know, if, if you're, if you're married or you're dating, you know, and someone came and asked you, oh, why did, why do you want to marry this person? Or, oh, why are you dating this person? Hopefully your answer isn't, well, I don't hate them. (laughs) So why not? There's no hate between us, so, okay then, sounds good, right? Like, no, you you need more than just not hating somebody, don't you? Like, love is a bit more than that. Love is a bit more than just the attitude. Love is just a bit more than the absence of anger or the absence of hate or animosity. Love itself is a powerful force. Love is something that moves forward. Love is something we act on, right? And that is where you really see love, is in that action. And in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus encourages us. He says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And if the band just want to come up and join us, that'd be great. He says, pray for those who persecute you. Now, that I can do. You know, I think it's so important we realize, like, this idea of loving and even acting on love, it's not about forcing a relationship with somebody who maybe doesn't want a relationship with you. And I'm not talking about pursuing a relationship with somebody who's maybe developed a habit of hurting people around them. I think it's important we understand that as well. This isn't about putting yourself necessarily in a place where you're kind of setting yourself up to be hurt. This isn't necessarily what love has to look like, but what Jesus is encouraging us to do is he's saying, pray for your enemy. Pray for that person who's hurt you. Pray for that person that you just don't understand. Now, I know what you're thinking, and maybe you're thinking, I do pray for them. 
I pray they move away. I pray they get another job. I pray their personality changes. I pray I don't have to see their face ever again. And that's not what we're talking about. You know, Jesus is saying, pray for your enemies, as in pray for their blessing. Pray that they're going to experience God's love the way that you have. Pray that God would move in their life. Pray that they would have his peace. That actually sounds a lot harder, doesn't it, when you really think about it. Pray that they would be blessed. Pray that they would know God's peace and his perfect love. Verse 48, Jesus says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And this word perfect, it doesn't mean um, without blemish or perfection in that way. What it means here is complete. It talks about being complete in love in the sense that the way that God loves us and loves the world leaves no gaps. It leaves no one out. Like, God is complete in the way that he loves you. God is complete in the way that he loves every single person on this planet. There's literally no one left for him to love who he hasn't loved. And there's nothing left in you for him to love that he doesn't love. He is perfect and complete in love. And Jesus is encouraging us here. He's saying, be perfect, just as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be complete in love. This is good news. You don't have to have hatred and bitterness and grudges and issues and drama in your life. This is not an inevitable part of life, actually. It's good news. There's an option there to live a life that is complete in love that's complete in his love because we don't have to do it on our own but we can have that agape love that first covers us and fills us and we get to experience that love of God in our lives first and then we get to kind of open our arms a bit and say okay who else needs this Who do I know I need to extend this to? Because I've not got the love for them. I need God's love to actually flow through me for this other person. Just as we close this morning, I just want to give you guys a moment just to reflect on that, to reflect on this incredibly good news that we are privileged to be a part of what God is doing in this world, that he has always cared for the wider world and for those around us. And just to reflect on the fact that living a life that is perfect and complete in love is completely possible because God loves us first. Discover more about us at lifelanks.org and stay inspired by subscribing to the podcast via iTunes. Thanks for listening.